201, 201 episodes of Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, the two best, three best friends that you never knew you had. Oh, it's me, it's Barry, it's the sweet man out by the bay, Lou Kippelman. Barry Rose, my friend, how you doing today? Uh, I am aces. I'm doing fantastic. I don't know if I'm aces. I, I'm going to say I'm uh, I'm holding like maybe jacks at this point because a right. little, little problem with the AC here. And why does that shit always happen in July or August, Barry? You know? Always. So, yeah. So I, I think it's not the unit itself, thank God. I think it's just the thermostat uh, that needs to be replaced. But anyway, besides talking about ACs and thermostats on this particular episode of Breaking KP with Bowdrin and Barry, going to, uh, I believe it's Houston, Texas, Barry. We're yes. going to be talking... A little Jake Roberts versus Mr. Unpredictable Dick Slater with Dark Journey at ringside. Why do I bring up Dark Journey being at ringside? Because joining us today, Barry, 201 episodes in. This is the person that I've always, always wanted to have joining us here on the show. Boom! The walking riot, they call her. Missy Hyatt is joining us here for a conversation. Special thanks to our friend Nick Massey for hooking us up. Uh, Missy has an appearance coming up, and we'll be talking about that uh, during the interview with Missy. Also, Barry, we're going to be doing this week in CWF. We're going to be talking, unfortunately, two absolute legends in the wrestling business, Jody Hamilton and Bobby Eaton have passed away this week. Barry and I will be discussing that. Uh, and, uh, yeah, a tough week for uh, for people in the wrestling business with uh, losing people of, of that stature, Barry. It's it sucks. There you can sugarcoat this and whatever. And I haven't listened to Jim Cornette, and I know that you know this has been a big topic of, and and rightly so. I think Jim had so much love for Bobby, but it's his words apparently were so heartfelt. This has been a tough. It's been a tough couple of years. Paul Orndorff a few weeks back, and it's like the hits just keep on coming. And then on the celebrity side, Marky Post was announced yesterday. And, uh, you know, I'm such a huge fan of Night Court. I think Night Court is now in my top 10 TV shows ever. I just absolutely continually on a daily basis watch it. And to think that, you know, Harry Anderson's been gone for two or three, four years at this point. Charles Robinson, like two weeks ago, three weeks ago, and now Marky Post. It, it just, it's hard. It, this is truly one of the things about getting older that really sucks. And when people that you admire, whether it's in sporting, television, music, whatever it is, when they start to pass away, you form this connection and it really sucks. All right, so let's go to our match of the week this week, Barry. We are talking January of 1986 as Jake the Snake Roberts. And boy, Barry, is he just a little bit over with the crowd, do you think, in Houston, Texas? Holy he, shit. He is, and that was something. So before I saw this match, because you know I saw this match about an hour and a half ago uh, before we started recording, and you said something to me a, a week or so ago, and you said – you are not going to believe how over Jake the Snake Roberts is here. It's almost Hogan-like-esque in a lot of ways. And to your credit, Jeff, you'd be 100% correct. Check. So we are talking, as I said, January 1986, the Sam Houston Coliseum, venerable Houston, Texas. Barry, tell us what you thought of this match. Yeah, so I, I really like that comparison to Hogan. Of course, when Jake starts cupping his ear towards the crowd. You know it, brother. You know it. it. Clear to see that, yes, he was. He was. But that that was, to me, the strength of this match. First off, 
I'm I'm as big a Dick Slater fan as anybody on Walking This Earth. Dick you Slater, love Dick. Is that what you're I, saying, Barry? I'm saying, well, and I'm saying I'm I'm a big Dick Slater fan. Do do you love Cox or Dick more? Oh, that's this a tough one. That's a tough we, one. We, right we really are 13 years old here. We? We, we're like 10 at this point. We're regressing. We're going way back. But Dick Slater is, uh, you know, and, and, and as as a lot of wrestlers and people would say, until he decided he wanted to be Terry Funk, Dick Slater was on the trajectory, on the path to being, you know, I think one of the greats of all time. And, and certainly Dick Slater is one of the greats of all time. But uh, Dick Slater, to me, one of the best to ever lace up a pair of boots when he was on. This guy was on. And no, I'm not talking about the rebel in WWF. I'm talking about Dick Slater in Florida and Georgia, the mid-Atlantic area. This guy was on. But with that being said, Jeff, the key to this match is Jake the Snake Roberts because a his charisma and his working of the crowd is it's fantastic. And I, I don't remember. It's like funny. I don't remember much of Jake as a baby face. He never made an impression on me as a baby face until this match, because he is, this is million, it's a million dollars here. I mean, what Jake is, and I would have to think this probably isn't too far before, uh, before he would wind up in the WWF. I imagine it's just a month or two. I down. will address uh, that particular subject uh, when I speak, Mr. Rose. Ah, Please continue. But with that, uh, it's clear to see why he would be snapped up because th- he does an incredible job here. So the match is good. Slater comes out with Dark Journey. I believe that was also his main squeeze uh, in real life as a shoot main squeeze. It was legit. They were together for a while. Tommy Gilbert, the referee, Tommy Gilbert, of course, father of Eddie Gilbert uh, and a longtime referee with Bill Watts. Uh, Main eventer in CWF in 1981. I think you remember, Bear. I do. And I, I will tell you, I was never <laughs> a fan. <laughs> I believe that we've discussed this. I think we've I talked about that. More never a fan. You yeah. know, but look, that's let me let me say also, because I know that we have a lot of Tommy Gilbert fans and I know J.D. McKay will show up at my doorstep and whip my ass a Southern ass whipping match. Uh, Tommy Gilbert was a great boy. We're talking Cox. We're talking Dick. We're talking ass whipping. whipping. Yeah. We've got Missy Hyatt on the show. The homoerotic episode here. I think. Yeah, Yeah, exactly. That's the route we're going now after uh, all of our misogyny over the last 200 episodes. We now have to switch over to that. But uh, Tommy Gilbert was a strong wrestler and a strong hand and should have been mid card and not being put in main events, much like I'll always say Charlie Cook, because a lot of people shit on Ric Flair shits on Charlie Cook and said, I win the world title and they have me facing Charlie Cook of all people. Uh, Charlie Cook was a fine mid card wrestler, should not have been put in that main event position. It just wasn't working. Tommy Gilbert, same thing. But I always like Tommy Gilbert, but I like this match a lot. And there's nothing that happens in this match that makes you go, holy shit, can you believe Jake Roberts just did that or Slater just did that? No, it's not that, but it's a good back and forth, and you're watching two guys that are old-school territory wrestlers that knew how to work a match. I also love the ending, and I'm going to tell you what I loved about the ending. Was was it a screw job ending? Sure it was. Was Jake Roberts' reaction to that screw job ending $8 million? It absolutely was that he, he really truly was 
the surprise of this match because he was fantastic. Great match overall. I think it's only 10 or 12 minutes. It's not a long match, so it's right in my ADD wheelhouse, Jeff, which I'm happy to say. But uh, I highly recommend this for a territorial look. So here's a couple things about this. Uh, First of all, um, I believe Jake had gone to the WWF literally maybe within a month after this match took place. So uh, I I find it interesting. If you think back, uh, I believe if he was, uh, he might not have still been the booker, but there was a period of time here where Slater was the booker in Mid-South slash UWF. So he may have been the booker here, uh, giving himself the old uh, North American title. But um, think about the fact that within a couple months after this match took place, it's when Bill Watts went national. Think about what Bill Watts could have done as he tried to go forward nationally if those raids on his talent hadn't happened, if Ted DiBiase hadn't gone, if Jake Roberts hadn't gone, if Jim Duggan hadn't they would have had a much fuller roster that Bill Watts could have, you know, used. Uh, and boy, Jake Roberts going national as a babyface with that act, uh, you know, and with that, oh, that charisma that he has. You can talk probably to her blue in the face about all the demons that haunted Jake Roberts of his career, but no one can say that that guy didn't have some fucking charisma. And boy, did he put it on use here in those interviews that he would give. Yeah, they don't have him here, but. You know, Jake Roberts is always one of those guys. We talk about Jody Hamilton and how Jody Hamilton almost never had to shout. Guess who else was like that? You almost never heard Jake Roberts shout. He almost talked barely above a whisper to emphasize his point. So when he did raise his voice, it really meant something. The other thing about this match uh, and uh, everything around it, you know, uh, weeks before, weeks after, is there was a story that went out uh, about this feud and this program that uh, apparently a writer in Houston, I think maybe for the Houston Post, had gotten wind of the fact uh, that Jake Roberts was getting ready to leave for the WWF. So uh, I'm not sure it was this match or a match around this general time frame. He basically puts in the paper, well, if you're going to the matches tonight, expect to see Jake Roberts lose because I've heard that he's getting ready to go to the WWF. Well, Bill Watts gets wind of this. Bill Watts has Jake not only go over but in that match, win the North American title just to fuck the Houston Post reporter and, yep. and call his bluff and call his bullshit. And then the next week, they had Slater win the title back. But that's how protective of the industry that people like Bill Watts were, th- that he basically knew he had a guy that was getting ready to leave town. But just to put the fuck you on a reporter from the Houston Post, he had Jake win the title knowing that he was going to be leaving like in a week. and. Oh, boy, the, the crowd's reaction to Jake Roberts on this night is really great. And, uh, you know, Dark Journey is is working the crowd at ringside. And, uh, yeah, she she was really, really good when she was with uh, with Dick Slater. No question. They were a great pair, worked great. And, and you can tell that Slater really uh, prepped her for her work at ringside. Good, good stuff. You know, uh, you're probably right, Barry. Match of the year, maybe not. But as far as crowd reactions, this is really good shit, Bear. Yeah, and that's all that matters, too, when you stop and think about it. If, you know, especially back in those days where, you know, the goal was always to get a fan to buy a ticket to come to the arena. Now it's different. You know, you spend your money electronically and you're doing it that way. But uh, all that mattered at that stage was the reaction of the crowd, even if the match totally sucked, which it didn't. As long as the crowd is vested into it and happy about it. 
they're going to show up next week. And Paul Bosch had a saying, and I, I always thought this was genius. And Paul Bosch would say, uh, you know, my last card, I only drew 3000. I can sit here and I can tell you every excuse underneath the sun. Gas prices are high. There was a hurricane outside. I can tell you everything at the end of the day. I put on a card that people didn't want to see. And when you watch a match like this, you clearly can see how excited these people are for this match. And again, Jake Roberts, this, I don't ever recall him being like this, but th this is the, the question as you were talking, I was thinking of, could Jake Roberts have taken the success he was having in Houston, his connection with the crowd and brought that national? Would that have played in New York? As a babyface, I I think it would have been a lot easier to bring him in as a heel. The you know take it taking the whole Jake the Snake with a with a friggin' snake gimmick out of the equation. Just you know he presented such a sinister persona, and uh, you know one of the things that I will always kind of be a, a little bit regretful of when it comes to Jake is that every person I've ever talked to that uh, when you discuss Jake Roberts. You know, people that shit on him because of his personal issues or praise him because, you know, of his interviews were always will say that Jake Roberts had a great, great mind for the business. He really understood uh, crowd psychology, when to do a certain move, when to hold off on it until the crowd was ready for it. He really had a great feel for that. And you can't help but wonder how successful Jake would have been if he could have kept his demons in check at being a booker in a territory. Yeah, you're right about that, too. And I, you know, Jake is a guy people have asked and they said, have you thought about bringing Jake, Jake down to a fan fest? And I I never uh, I never really gave it much consideration. A lot of it had to do with less about who he was as a professional wrestler, but more about who he was as a human being. I know that he has made great strides and improvements in his life over the last few years. Uh but uh, I got to tell you, as I watch this match and, and I don't think I don't think Jake could have been the same type of over baby face in the Northeast that he was saying out West or in the South, uh, certainly after being brought in as a heel, which Vince did brought him in as a heel, wound up turning him. And I think he was pretty over at that point. But that, I wonder. So let's say that Watts had kept DiBiase, Jake, Duggan. Uh, you know, and a bunch of other guys uh, that he wound up losing bigger names, smaller names, just if he could have kept intact and he would have continued with his style of booking, which I felt at that stage was fantastic. Could he have taken over or at least had a really strong foothold out West and in the South? I think the Northeast would have been really difficult for him, but everywhere else in the country, do you think he could have made a lot of progress? I think uh, if he had gotten the TBS spot, history would have perhaps been a lot different. I mean, maybe he would have yeah. kept it for a couple of years and then, you know, eventually, like everyone else, he would have fallen to Vince and, and Vince's, you know, being in control of the media capital of the world, not not just this country uh, yeah. in New York City. And, uh, you know, the, the thing that's interesting, as I think back about your question about how Jake would have got over as a babyface, you know, as I mentioned before, I, I've been watching some stuff. Uh, I'm now on like April of 80. 82 and mid Atlantic and Jake is a baby face and he comes out and he's got a cowboy hat. He's almost like cowboy Jake Robertson. He's just not good. 
you know, oh, it, it, terrible. Yeah, yeah. And just, and, and I'm watching this going, wow, how did this guy yep. within literally like a year or two, just transform himself into becoming somebody that was so friggin' interesting. It's, you know, it's crazy, Barry, but he was so bland and just, just, uh, I didn't want to say he's a white meat baby face because that's not really what he was. He just, he came off as just like another guy. Well, that's so the, the knock and the, first off the cowboy gimmick thing with the hat was terrible, but he, uh, Jake had a rep. If you go back and again, we're asking you to go back 40 years, but Jake had a rep as a terrible worker. Like there wasn't anybody saying I had to go see Jake, the snake Roberts wrestle. He was not a good wrestler. And he developed into a very passable wrestler over time. Clearly, though, as you had mentioned, his strength really wasn't what was happening in the ring. The strength was in the interviews and the strength was in the psychology because Jake was one of those guys with a very limited skill set could get into a ring and as a heel could have the entire building wanting to kill him. And that's an art. Yeah. Uh, you know, and in mid-Atlantic, his finisher was not the DDT. His finisher was the knee lift. Which was a which terrible is, knee lift, actually. Yeah, which is, uh, which is kind of crazy. Okay, Barry, it's now time for us to talk about this week in CWF. What you got for me, my man? Absolutely. So with this episode dropping on August the 10th, we will look at August the 10th. Hey, look that at- works. Yep, we're going to go back, Jeff, to the city that you made lewd gestures at Missy Hyatt. Allegedly. Allegedly. Are you saying, is this a Watergate situation? Has the video taken? I think it was Oban Johnson, my friend. Poor Oban. It wasn't Gabe Daigle in the second row behind you doing that? Oban doesn't have enough on his plate with the fucking cancer. Now (laughs) (laughs) We are, so we're, (laughs) that's awesome. We We love you, Oban. We do love you, Oban. And uh, as Jeff tries to pin you making blowjob gestures to Missy Hyatt, I'm going to blame Gabe Daigle, who sat behind you at that event. Uh, so in any case, St. Pete, uh, August the 10th, 1955, Jeff. I was not there. You were there. <laughs> so there was, a, the, there was Bonnie Watson versus Therese Thies. Rumor has that you were making these gestures. <laughs> At Bonnie Watson. You're oh, saying please. this is a lie? She was a lovely woman, but it was not me. <laughs> okay. Uh, getting back to that. So Bonnie Watson versus Therese Thies. This is 1955. I bring this match up for a couple of reasons. Bonnie Watson, the venerable forever and perennial CWF women's champion, uh, also married to Stu Schwartz. Stu uh, approaching 90, still with us. Uh, doing well from all I've been told. But what makes this interesting, also on this card, you have a young Ray Stevens wrestling a Dick Brown. Let's let's go, Jeff. Dick Brown, let's hear a joke. Let's go. Me? Uh, would I make a joke about uh, uh, No. <laughs> Lou, you got one? Dick Brown? <laughs> all right. Uh, but really, the connection here is Ray Stevens and Therese Thies, they were married. And I don't know if they were married at this time or got married right after, but they were a they were Mr. and Mrs. Ray Stevens uh, for several years. And then when Ray was down on his luck towards the end of his life, didn't have much money and was dying, Therese Thies actually took him in. And uh, I believe he was living with her up until he died, which just, you know, that's a it, Ray Stevens, one of those guys that you could be married to and then get divorced and still love him that you would let him come live with you, which 
really that's everything I've heard about Ray Stevens. So I thought that was interesting. Uh, going up 12 years, uh, 8-10-67 in Jacksonville. Russian chain match, meaning that the great Malenko is in a chain match. But however, losing to Sailor Art Thomas. Now, this is interesting because as in professional wrestling, which is a lot of hyperbole, Jeff, as we both know, and everybody listening knows, Great Malenko never lost a Russian chain match. However, ever lost about 50% of his Russian chain matches, yet continued to be billed as never having lost a Russian chain match. But this match caught my eye, taking place three years later in 1970 in Orlando. Southern title. You've got two stellar New Japan workers here. Hiro Matsuda defending the title against Mr. Saito. That's a pretty good matchup right there. Sign me up for that one, Jeff. Mr. Saito, one of my favorites of all time. Moving on a year later, 1971 in Tampa, Southern title, Jack Briscoe defeats Gene Kaniski. And I find this match interesting. Uh, Gene Kaniski coming off of about uh, two years, two and a half years since he lost the world's heavyweight title to Dory Funk Jr., uh, which he also lost in this very city of Tampa. Uh, Jack Briscoe defending the Southern title here. This also being Gene Kaniski's last ever match in Florida. And really what was interesting to me is I go back and I look through all the records. Gene Kaniski never spent a lot of time in Florida. If he wasn't defending the world's heavyweight champion, uh, if, if he wasn't defending the title, he really wasn't working in the state. I think this might've been the only match I can find for him where he wasn't defending the NWA world's heavyweight title. I do like the match right underneath the guy that I just mentioned that beat him for the title, Dory Funk Jr. Defending against Cyclone Negro. And that's a, that's a solid match. Cyclone Negro too, Jeff, one of those guys completely forgotten by the, uh, in, in history when it comes to professional wrestling, didn't make that transition where people talk about him in these revered terms. If you saw him, if you saw him work, you have the utmost respect for him. But for whatever reason, his in-ring career was kind of wrapped up by the early 80s. He never worked nationally in a promotion. And he's kind of an afterthought. And I got to say, I think that's a shame because this guy in the territories, he was the real deal. Do you have any Cyclone Negro memories, Jeff? Yeah, he the fucker no-showed. <laughs> that's what I, every time we go to see him, especially after uh, he had the... Uh, the the split with um oh god what's the guy uh L uh, Gran Apollo yeah yeah there they were also oh there's a rematch El Gran Apollo versus Cyclone Negro and much like the uh the legendary uh, D V E after he turned babyface uh yeah it was uh, uh El Gran Apollo I feel like I'm sure you'll find matches out there where he did show but every time in South Florida eh, they never showed and I really wanted to see those matches because I was into watching Cyclone Negro against the young babyface Gran Apollo. Yeah, and I believe our our friend Howard Baum that's been working on Hardway Art Hardway Art uh, website for the last twenty years. I think he's actually got photos of a chain match between the two that uh, I've seen him promote. That the fantastic looking uh, photos, by the way. A year later in Jacksonville, that same world's heavyweight champion Dory Funk Jr. defending the title against Paul Jones. Paul Jones, number one. I have gone on record many times, much like Missy Hyatt. And that wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Hold on, hold on one second. I'm going to check the record. Let me check the record. <laughs> oh, here it is right here. Is it, it was there? Uh, two and a half years ago. You were on the record saying Paul Jones 
uh, was a tremendous uh, worker, a tremendous wrestler, and uh, <laughs> along with Jack Briscoe and Buddy Colt, the three of them had a great. Okay, go ahead. All right. Well, there, there you go. You got verbatim. You've got that down, Jeff. That's exactly what I said. That's a solid matchup. We move on to 1974, but we stay in the same city of Jacksonville. I like this card. Listen to some of these matches, Jeff. You've got Eddie Graham versus Gary Hart in a lights out match. You've got Pac Song versus Dusty Rhodes in a Texas bull rope match. Harley Race who at this point is in between world titles. This is 1974 facing Don, a baby face, Don Morocco, Bob. Magnificence. Magnificence. Yes. Bob Armstrong facing cowboy Bill Watts in a Florida title match. And how's this for a preliminary match? I think this was the second match on the card that night. Greg Valentine against a young Keith Franks. Keith Franks, obviously. Adrian Adonis. Yeah, had to be. I mean, that just had to be a good matchup right there. Uh, a couple of years later, 1977 Miami Beach, uh, Pat Patterson faces Jerry Briscoe. Of course, that's instrumental is that these two later became the Stooges for McMahon, Mr. McMahon. They were the Stooges, also the best of friends, and actually did a CWF Legends Fan Fest, which was number four uh, as a team. Did that with us. I like that match. Ernie Ladd facing Rocky Johnson is a winner-take-all. And then the main event that night, the WWWF titles at stake is superstar Billy Graham puts the title on the line against Jack Briscoe. Now, I bring that match up, Jeff, for a very specific reason. Barry, tell us why you bring that up specifically. Because you said during the interview, which is not even an interview, we just chatted with Missy Hyatt, We really don't do interviews here. We can be honest. We just chat. But uh, during that conversation with Missy Hyatt, you said Bobby Eaton is one of those rare guys that nobody has ever said a bad word about and nobody ever will. And I think Jack Briscoe falls into that category. However, somebody did say a bad word about Jack Briscoe. And I want to share that with you because... Yes, because in that, you also said, Jeff, if somebody says something bad about Bobby Eaton, consider the source. And yes, you're 100% correct, Jeff, for the second time this episode. Consider the source, because superstar Billy Graham, in an interview conducted for the old CWF Archives website some 20 years ago, said he didn't like working with Jack Briscoe. He didn't think much of him didn't like his style of wrestling, let that sink in for a minute, and was one of his least favorite opponents to ever work with. Hmm. I guess we're not going to be having the superstar. (laughs) (laughs) I would say that's pretty much accurate, but I remember reading that going, did he really just say that? A guy, look, superstar Graham, my God, he he changed the dynamic of professional wrestling, but nobody's ever going to say he was a great worker, or a great professional wrestler. His matches were not great. With that being said, to criticize Jack Briscoe, to me, that's absolutely fucking insane. Last match we have for this date, Jeff, which would be 1977, August the 10th, Fort Myers, a babyface Don Morocco again featured working with Ivan Koloff. These two had a feud in 77. This is my favorite Don Morocco, which is almost heresy to say that, 
because everybody will say the magnificent Morocco, and he really was great as a heel. This in 77, he was a kick-ass baby face. He was stiff looking. He was tough. He would battle. He just, he was everything you would ever want in a professional wrestler in 77. His feud with Ivan Koloff was just off the charts. These were great matches. I wish we could go back to these days, Jeff. So Barry, the time has finally come after 200 freaking episodes. I can now admit this is somebody Barry that I have wanted to have on this show. I mean, for a freaking long time, Barry join me and the rest of the brothership and, and asking to join us. The woman they call the walking riot, Missy Hyatt. Thank you for joining us here on breaking Cape Bay with Bowdrin and Barry. Oh, well, thank you for having me. And what's your name again? Uh, the, well, you know, they call me Jeff Bowdrin. That's uh, the last last I've heard. Huh, because that name sounds so familiar. Are you sure we haven't met? Um, I, you know, I do not think we, I certainly would remember if we had. Are you sure you're not that guy that was at, um, I think it was a, uh, the first, God, what was it? It was like a pay-per-view, and you were in the back doing <laughs> doing really nasty hand signals or whatever. Me? When I do something like that, Missy, I'm not that kind of person, I can assure you. Yeah, it was down, I think, in Fort St. Pete or somewhere. Uh, it might have been in that area. 30-something years ago. Is that I hope you? you? I hope you can forgive me, Missy. I can't forgive you. Oh, okay. Oh, well, I, can't, I can't blame I can't you for that. You. I'm sorry. I can't forgive you. Now okay. you're in the doghouse. Okay, well, I'll try to get out of the doghouse. Barry, why don't you get us out of the okay. doghouse? Yeah, well, Jeff, uh, <laughs> Jeff, Missy and I set this up a little earlier, so... Uh, I can't believe you would do that to me. You're, you're kayfabing me. <laughs> exactly, but uh, Missy, thank you so much. So I, I did call Missy, and I, I kind of clued her in about the, the whole situation in St. Pete, the lewd hand gesture, Doug Dillon... Alleged, alleged lewd hand gesture, please. Apparently, there's video footage of this. But well, yes. I can either confirm or deny that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm sure there is. <laughs> yeah. You see, we are thrilled. I gotta, I'm got i going to go on. Look, I've said this on the podcast. I'm going to say a half dozen times that people actually will repeat this back to me. There was no one in professional wrestling that was more beautiful than 1987 Missy Hyatt wearing that oh. powder blue leather dress in UWF. That was it. That is the pinnacle. Oh, that is thank it. you. Absolutely <laughs> true. And uh, I've said it and I'll continue to say it. And people agree with me whenever I say it. But this is an honor to have you with us. And uh, as Jeff, you've just uh, you've just met Jeff and our producer, Sweet Lou Kippelman. The first question I want to ask you, though, is uh, which is pretty much right out of the gate. You're getting into sure. professional wrestling. I've always heard you were somehow related to General Homer Odell. Is that accurate? No, I don't even know who that is. Okay, so that's another internet, some sort of bullshit rumor. But there was a manager. Yeah, a manager. Internet, the highway of misinformation. Absolutely. There was an old old school manager uh, in the 60s and I guess early 70s named Homer Odell. And somehow you were supposed to be related. I've always wanted to ask you that. Thank you for denying that one. Yeah, no, I don't even know who that is. I, I got into it because I was dating Hollywood John Tatum. I was his girlfriend. 
Well, let me and ask John you, Missy. John Tatum is like cousins. They're not real cousins, but they're close enough to be cousins with Michael Hayes. Well, Missy, let me ask you, before you met John, were you a wrestling fan, like, growing up? Yeah, yeah. I became a wrestling fan when I was 17 years old, when I saw the Freebirds on Georgia Championship Wrestling. And I was just like, oh, my God, I love this. This is what I want to do, you know? So, so that's how it all started. Yeah, and I mean, did, had you did you meet them at that point, or did you like you know later when you got yeah, into business? I, mean, I I I went to shows and I just met wrestlers, you know, at shows and stuff. Back, you know, when they were local, lot, you know, when it was Georgia Championship Wrestling, they wrestled just in Georgia and I think Ohio and some other places. But you know, they were there every other week at the at the sport at the reunion, reunion. Oh, what was it? The Omni in Atlanta, you know, and you'd see that. You know, because they would plug the shows. And so I, Macon was the first wrestling show I ever went to. And I got to meet Tommy Rich and Michael Hayes. And I was just like in in awe of it, you know, and having such a great time. Yeah. And so when you were out in, I guess it was out in Dallas and it was out in Texas. And you 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 were with John Tatum. You were his girlfriend and yeah. got involved in professional wrestling. So how was that? How was the transition going from being a little girl going to the matches live to now actually working in the business. Oh, it was amazing. I, was, I got to do, I got paid to do something I would have done for free. It was so amazing. So let me ask you a, a question that I thought of Missy, as, as you worked, uh, you know, in world-class when you worked in the UWF and then WCW and, and some time in WWE, I have to imagine uh, I I know there's a video out there where I believe you were at ringside and had to be in world class. And I think a lady grabbed you and you were very adamant <laughs> about having one the lady get thrown out for grabbing you. So as a valet, where was the place that you worked where you found the fans treated? And I'm sure fans, whether they be male fans or female fans, could have been very mean spirited and non PC oh, yeah. in today's world. Where did they treat you the worst, do you think? Oh, it had to be El Paso because we came, we were going out, and it, and if John lost, then Sunshine got five minutes in the ring with me. And everybody was standing up and throwing nacho cheese in my hair, beers on us, and just, and we had security around us. And security came, they walked us out, and then they got about 10 steps, and they turned around and said, we're going back to the dressing room. Because one lady got her shirt ripped, one of the security ladies had her shirt ripped. I mean, the people were just trying to get to us to touch us and hit us and do whatever they could to us. And so they went on the uh, announce, you know, they went on and announced that if no, everybody doesn't sit down in their chair, this match is not going to start. They're not going to have this match. So they made everybody sit down and then security walked us out. And then at the end, you know, John grabs me away from Sunshine and he just used me as a battering ram all the way back to the dressing room. You know, my feet and everything. It was so funny. I was holding on to him, you know, with the death hold. And he got me back to the dressing room. Okay. But, yeah, it had to be El Paso. They were crazy there. Did you find Did you find that the women or the men were worse as far as the way they treated you? Both. Both. Yeah. But it was so funny because I had a lot of young girls that really liked me. Like in WCW, I would get a lot of letters from young girls. You know, and, um, you know, saying, oh, I want to be like you when I grow up. And I'm like, oh, you want to be a dumb blonde bimbo? Okay. <laughs> you know. 
Gotcha. So we do want to thank Missy. Missy is joining us today. Uh, compliments of Captain's Corner, our old friend, Captain Nick Massey. Yes. Missy, has, yeah, you have three appearances coming up this weekend. Uh, with Just a few days away with Nick, you are going to be in Comac, New York at the Wrestling Universe this upcoming yes. Thursday, which is August the 12th between 6 and 8. Uh, Comac's a nice city. Have you ever been there, Missy? Yeah, I've been there. It's really nice. Really nice. And then you are doing yeah. what Nick has made famous now during the pandemic, uh, Captain's Corner, the Captain's Corner Happy Hour, which will be Friday, August 13th at a 7 p.m. start time. This will be a virtual signing uh, on the exclusive Captain's live feed. And then you've yeah. got on Saturday, so you got three in a row, Saturday, August 14th, 11 a.m. start time in Holyoke, Massachusetts, at Heroes Hideout. So three big yep. appearances, two are in person. And let me tell one you, the virtual. virtual one is going to be amazing because I've got, I even have one of my booking sheets from oh. World Class that I'm going to auction off. Nice. I've got so much stuff that, you know, wedding pictures of me and Eddie, I've got all kinds of things that I'm going to auction off that people are going to be amazed that I, I'm a hoarder. You know, I'm just like my dad. I have to admit it. Yes, I'm a hoarder. Um, but I mean, I don't let it. I, you don't have to walk over stuff in my house to get through it. Not like that. But it's like I kept every newspaper article I was in. I kept all that stuff. And it's out in my garage in boxes. So I started going through some of the stuff saying, oh, my God, this would be cool, you know, to auction off. This, you know, I even have like one of the Mid-South folders i have wcw uh um i wanted the envelopes and and their uh letterhead oh wow and letterhead from wcw i have a lot of stuff that i'm gonna auction off so well gotcha I, so, yeah and I, so i'm gonna be there now that you you're telling me about all this great wrestling memorabilia again that's captain's yeah. corner happy hour friday august 13th friday the 13th holy shit didn't even realize that oh yeah 7 p.m start time that's actually good luck from everything that i've been told so it, taking into account you just mentioned sunshine uh you've worked with a lot of of women over the years i saw you in charlotte a couple of weeks ago with dark journey and dark journey and you yeah. you know you guys work together in for mid-south uwf who is your favorite female to work with during your career oh it had to have been sunshine it had to have been sunshine because she taught me everything that i knew you know which wasn't much in the ring you know but Little work, green work I learned, I learned from her. And Sherry Martell. I had a great match with Sherry Martell one time in Canada. So, so you know, one of the one of the things that I appreciate about you, Missy, you know, I, I follow you on Twitter also, and, you know, you're constantly uh, posting on Twitter about, oh, I'm, uh, I'm getting up, I'm working out, and while I'm working out, I'm watching this match. And, yeah, you watch it. You're a wrestling fan. And I think oh, that's... I that that's and it, it continues to this day. You know, you're not one of these people that left the business. You know, f this. I, I never want anything to do it. You still follow it with almost the same amount of passion you had when you were that young girl that uh, you know yeah. turned on Georgia. I love it. It's, once you get it in your system, you, it doesn't it doesn't go away. Preach. You know, I don't Preach. Care that's what true. Anybody says. You know, I don't care what anybody says. It's like the mob. Once 
once you're in, you know, <laughs> uh, you can't get out. So, that's a, yeah, but I, I appreciate Tommy Dreamer letting me do the thing with, um, with Impact Wrestling, you know, last week when I was on the pay-per-view. And that was really fun to get to feel re- relevant for the night, you know, and having people chant my name and stuff like that. It was fun. So, it, you know, the stuff that you watch, whether it's while you're working out at the gym or at home, or is, is there one that you, let, you know, like WWE, AEW, Japan, is there one that's your particular favorite right now? Um, New Japan. Probably New Japan. Yeah. And, I wow. mean, anybody, anybody in particular or just the whole promotion? Uh, the whole promotion. I like the whole promotion. I liked it when they had like Kenny Omega and Young Bucks and stuff like that. They don't need more, but they still got great talent. And their work work rate is great. So I like that. You know, and I, I like CML or the one from Mexico. I, I kind of like the Mexico a little bit. You know, I don't know. I, and I like old stuff. I love watching the old school stuff from like the 80s and you know, the territory stuff. I really like watching that. Yeah. And that's, that's something too, that I, I it's pr- kind of cool about your career is that, you know, you came along at a period when the territories were basically dying out, but you still yeah. got to work. I you wish still... I would have started earlier so I could have worked some more of the territories. Cause that seems like that would have been fun working on the territories. So on that note, if I was to ask you your favorite, and I, I realized too, you're, you were only in a few territories, but what was your favorite time in professional wrestling as far as your career? What did you enjoy the oh, most? No, it had to have been when I first started in 85. And I was in a lot of territories, as a matter of fact. I was like in Memphis, which was USWA, I think, or something right. like that. I was in Continental, which was the Alabama territory. I was in UWF, uh, world class. And then NWA, when it was before they became WCW, and then WCW, and then WWE for eight weeks, and then ECW, and then some smaller promotions. Barry, apparently on your comment to Missy, you are 100% incorrect, my friend. I I was Czech. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, but uh, she did work a lot. I. I actually got to see her when she was in Continental uh, with Eddie Gilbert. I was uh, I happened to be through there, and Pete was actually taking photos during that entire oh, okay. time. Yeah, my our old friend, the professor Peter Letterberg. So, so in seeing you when I saw you a couple weeks ago in Charlotte at the Gathering, uh, you were. I'll say this: there are a lot of people, a lot of wrestlers, a lot of people in the business that do fan fests that aren't quite as engaging, which I think is a big mistake. They, they leave their table, they look at their phone. I, I was kind of, I think I was a row over from you. So I wasn't so far from you. You were, you were having a party at your table. And what that <laughs> meant is everybody in the room wanted to be over where you were. Your lines were long, you were always there. And then Sunday, even as everything was winding down, you were still there working, which really said something about you uh, with your work ethic. So taking all that into account, everything I just said, you have worked for some some hard ass people in professional wrestling. Bill Watts oh, yeah. is a name that comes to mind. But who was the oh, toughest boss 
you had in professional wrestling? No lot. There you go. No yeah. He was the toughest. He was an asshole. Yeah. There you an, go. An asshole in a bad way or an asshole in a good way? <laughs> an asshole in a bad way. If you okay. were late, they would like fine you, you know, and just other kinds of really bad stuff. You know, he didn't like guys playing cards in, in the dressing room because they weren't out watching the matches or whatever. And, and it's like nowadays you, you look in the dressing room and they're all on their phones, you know, watching their sh- stuff on the phone. But, you Jeff, know. I w- Jeff, I was going to ask you to phone. define. Jeff, can you define asshole in a good way for me? Well, what? you know, <laughs> he, he, he's, a, he's a jerk, but you also, you know, people have said when you work for Bill Watts, he was an asshole, but you, you felt like you learned something. Did you feel like you learned something or was he just an asshole? I never learned anything from him. Okay. So, well, now let me ask you, going on to something else. I sent you a, I sent you a picture, Missy. Yeah. And it was you and Eddie on your wedding day. Tell me what you remember about that day. Oh, what I remember about that day is that, um, that we shocked a lot of people because, you know, it was supposed to be a Halloween party. And then they showed up, and we showed up as a bride and a groom and got married by a wizard. So it kind of shocked them, because um, some people didn't know we were going to do that. So it's just but I mean, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a happy memory, though? Yeah, it's a great memory. Fair. Yeah, yeah. And I, uh, so I knew, Missy, I knew Eddie Gilbert. Uh, Eddie Gilbert and I attended a fan fest, which wasn't even called, it was called the wrestling fans international association. And they would have a convention every year. And I met Eddie when he was 17 years old in 1978. And uh, this prior to him even getting into wrestling and we formed a friendship and he obviously went on to do great things in the business. I didn't, uh, as it was shocking. shocking. Yeah. I'm still sitting on the couch. Go figure. But, uh, so we actually, we review matches and we just reviewed a match on this episode and it's Dick Slater versus Jake Roberts and dark journey is in the corner of Jake Roberts and dark journey. Somebody that you worked with, you know, for quite I a while. I thought she'd be in the corner of Dick Slater. She wasn't in the corner of Dick Slater. Splash. Did I say Jake Roberts? I it's the cough syrup. I apologize. It okay. was uh, it was it was Dick Slater. But uh, seeing that you know you're still with with her as a, a great friend, you two look like you were having a blast down in Charlotte. What kind of memories? Uh, yeah, she's fun. She's, she's fun. Looking. I used to I used to not like her because she used to beat my ass every night that we worked together. But we we've grown up, and at the last gap, the gathering before that, her and I got together and started talking, and then we just became best buds, you know. And all that mean stuff I said about her, and all that bad stuff that I've said, you know, the last thirty years, I take it all back, you know, because she's a great girl. Great so, girl. Missy, one of the things I wanted to ask you about, uh, I know we have a limited window with you today. And again, we want to thank our friend Nick Massey for uh, for helping us with this appearance with you. Uh, we lost Bobby Eaton uh, very recently. And uh, we wanted to ask you if you have any memories, uh, you know, just of of being, you know, around Bobby, his time in the business and st- uh, such like uh, that. Well, Bobby is always like, 
Hey, how you doing, young man? <laughs> That's my imitation of him. I loved him to death. And I, it was, I think a lot of it had to do with Donna, you know, his wife dying. Because she died just a month or so ago. Sure. And then, and then him passing away, you know, people that have been married that long and love each other, it's hard. When one of them dies, the other one just dies, you know. You know, one of the th- one of the things I said was, uh, of all the people that Barry and I have known in the wrestling business, you have some that people like, some that people don't like. Bobby Eaton seemed like he was a guy that y- you couldn't find anybody to really say a negative thing about Bobby. All right, yeah, he was a great guy. He was a nice guy, genuinely nice guy. Gotcha. So uh, I'm going to blow your mind a little bit with this, Missy. In 19- what? Oh, yeah, Jeff, uh-huh. we're going to break. We're going to break kayfabe right now. In 1994, uh, I was living in New York City, and I had, uh, I had, I'm born and raised in South Florida, where Jeff and I were friends. And I moved up to okay. New York, and uh, I used to visit an establishment every Thursday night because I knew the promoter. His name was Matt Demat. Matt Demat. Yeah. And, and I walk into this establishment, which was on West 57th Street called La Barbat. And Matt says, hey, I want you to meet a friend of mine. And he introduces me to Missy Hyatt. And I'm standing in a nightclub in New York City <laughs> and, and meeting Missy Hyatt. But whatever happened to Matt to Matt? Any idea? He's still, he's still a promoter. He ended up buying a bar and um, down in... Oh God, what was it called? Oh, what's it called? Um, not the meat packing district, but Tribeca. Sure. He, he bought a bar down in Tribeca, and um, that's the last thing I've heard. I haven't heard anything from him in a long time because I haven't lived in New York in a while. So. Yeah, he was a he was a tremendous guy. I was managing a re- Jeff. I was managing a restaurant. You in have York never City. used those words before on this show, Bear. Not in this episode, right? Not but, on this one, no. But uh, anyways, as the story went, I whenever Matt would come into my restaurant, I would hook him up with whatever he needed. In return, I could go to La Barbat every Thursday, drink, have a great time, and never had to worry about it. And I got oh, to meet Missy Hyatt. Cool. Yeah, exactly. Oh. So if you're just joining us and you're just popping in, first question. And why are you just joining exactly, us? Exactly. Where the hell have you been? We have the first lady of professional wrestling with us. Missy Hyatt is joining us, the legend. Uh, and she comes compliments of Captain's Corner, our old friend, Captain Nick Massey. Three appearances coming up this weekend, tour in person. One is virtual. You've got to make some of these appearances. The Wrestling Universe in Comac, New York on Thursday, August the 12th. Start time at 6 p.m. Heroes Hideout in Holyoke, Massachusetts on Saturday, August 14th, 11 a.m. start time. And then a big appearance with the Captain's Corner Happy Hour on Friday, August 13th at 7 o'clock. Missy is going to have, for this Captain's Corner virtual appearance, one-of-a-kind, rare, never-seen-before wrestling memorabilia, including a WCCW booking sheet uh, and some other, some letters from WCW. I know I'm trying to downsize Jeff, but I am going to log on because I think I want that booking sheet now. (laughs) There's only one part of you that's downsizing, Bear. (laughs) It's not my waist, that's for sure. Uh, Yeah. 
<laughs> yeah, I'm gonna have a lot of stuff on there. I'm also gonna have bras and panties and stuff. And, what? And, uh, oh my. Yeah, bras and panties that I've worn. I got like eight by ten photo of me in the bra, and I'm wow. signing the picture. So it's like a certificate of authenticity for the bra. Sure. Like, yes, it was Missy Hyde's bra. Just because she signed it doesn't mean it's hers. And then you got a picture of me wearing it. Yeah, well, I mean, Dave, it's yours. Yeah. Dave Flaherty, yeah. you're definitely part of this. So. Dave Flaherty. Yeah. Dave Flaherty hitting the cash machine. This is <laughs> yes, <out. that's> <laughs> yes so, exactly. Missy, I have a couple more questions because I know we have a limited window with you. Uh, yeah. You know, you mentioned that El Paso, how the fans were, were kind of very uh, mean to you and stuff like that. So if that right. was a bad memory of a building that you're in, tell us a building that you worked in that you thought to yourself, wow, this is, you know, the, the fans are okay, but this is a nice building, and I feel like this is a really cool place to work. Oh, well, that had to have been when I came out for um, on um, Impact Wrestling this past Saturday on their pay-per-view for the mixed tag match. Okay. And um, when I came out and the people chanting for me and everything, and then, and we were the heels and I was getting chanted and I, I just thought it was amazing. And Tommy Dreamer said that when he went to tag and Rachel Ellery, and they're, they're, and they're chanting, we want Missy. He's like, where are the faces? He said to her, I don't get it. Where are the faces? <laughs> it's hard to be as loved as you are truly, Missy. I guess so. But I've never gotten that kind of love before from the audience. So it made me feel really, really good. Yeah, I think there's, and there's a, you can see it at the Fan Fest too, the level of love and the level of respect that uh, that fans have for people that they watched, you know, whether it's yourself or Dark Journey. And I had Mike Jackson was in between us and, you know, Mike Jackson, 72 years old, tore the house down at the wrestling show that night just to see yeah. people, yeah, to see people coming up to him and, you know, and to say, I watched you on TBS in 1980 and you're still right. great, it, but it means so much to him, not just the fans, but it means a lot to Mike as well. Uh, yeah. I thought that was great. So Missy, I've got a question for you. This is a, we're, we're kind of an irreverent podcast. We don't just talk about wrestling. We talk about everything, but um, okay. gotcha. And it's nothing too bad as you're prepping yourself for like, what's he going to say? It's not that bad. <laughs> exactly. So you, you've been literally you've been all over the country. You've worked in, you know, almost every city in the U.S. If I said to you, Missy Hyatt, I've got a jet plane. I'm paying for dinner. Tell me where we're going tonight. What's your favorite restaurant you've ever been to in the United States? Oh, my gosh. Well, it has to be. Oh, my God. Rayo's in New York City. Sure. Yeah. Or Peter Luger's. Right wow. what state. I don't know, but yeah, so in New York. You can buy the Rayo sauce now in the grocery stores. I know. It's so good. Isn't it amazing? It's a little pricier, it's but it's worth it. It's the yeah, only it's time. Worth it's worth the price. It's worth yeah, the price. It's fantastic. What's your, what was your favorite item at Rayo's? I was at Rayo's. I was at there. They have a Las Vegas outpost, and I was there like two weeks before the pandemic broke, and I got... Oh, wow. I got the pasta alla vodka, and I also got uh, chicken parmesan, and both were through the right. Jeff, I had two entrees, believe it or not. That's shocking. Shocking. Oh, my gosh. Through the roof, yeah, Missy. Everything, everything there is great. Everything there is great. I had this um, three cheese ravioli something made one time. I forget what else was 
daughter. But it was just everything about the place is great because I know the one on the Upper East Side. Like they only cook what they're cooking for that night, and you come in and you get what they give you. There's right. no order, and I love that because it's just like it's like going to your mom's house or something. They put this appetizer down, this salad down, and you know, here's a meal. You know, and it's like it's just amazing what you can get. Okay, so Missy, as we begin to wrap up, again, we want to say thank you so much for giving us your time, and we really do appreciate it. I have one last question, and because I know, based on, you know, as I said, when I follow you on Twitter, you are not somebody, I I dare say, that is afraid to give your opinion on something. Uh, Fair to say? Yes. So, and you may have already given us the answer earlier, but I'm just going to put it out there again. All the time you've been into the business, from the first time walking out with John until last week when you were out there with Tommy Dreamer and Rachel Ellering, who is the biggest asshole, male or female, that you've ever met in all your years in the business? Oh, my God. Biggest asshole. You just sit there and say, yeah, that guy, what an asshole, or that that woman, what an asshole she was. It, It could be either one. Jeff, is I it a good, good asshole or a bad asshole? No, no, it's not, it's not a good asshole. This is a bad asshole. Bad asshole, okay. I had to say this because they're, they're, they're dead, but he was so mean to me. It was um, Bobby, uh, uh, what's his name? Um, he just passed away not that long ago. Um, um, Bobby, that is... Not here. Bobby that has just passed away. Where did you work with him? And he was in WWE forever, and then he came to WCW. Bobby Heenan. Yes, Bobby Heenan. That's it. Bobby Heenan. He was the biggest asshole of me. Really? Wow. Wow. Yeah. So, all right. Well, I appreciate you uh, breaking kayfabe on that and giving us the intel. Missy, thank you so much for joining us. It is, like I said, I have been waiting a long time to have you as a guest, and I do appreciate (laughs) you joining us. And uh, once again, thanks to Nick Massey. And please, everybody, join Mi- uh, Missy when she's out there with Nick, uh, pushing uh, her items from, got world-class, WCW, all kind of stuff. And uh, thank you once again, Missy. We do appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks for having me. Okay. Thanks, Missy. Okay, bye. So, Barry, goes without saying that this has been a tough week for those of us not here at just at Breaking Kayfabe with Bowdrin and Barry, but those in the wrestling community as we lost, not even, you know, hyperbole, Barry, a couple of giants of the wrestling industry uh, and one that uh, you were perhaps more familiar with than the other. Uh, you had planned it on having him at the uh, CWF Legends Fan Fest in November. Our friend Jody Hamilton, uh, Barry, please, uh, Talk to us about your your memories and your your time spent and and with Jody. Just uh, uh, unfortunately, it, I got to say this was not like completely unexpected, Barry. But it's still a, a tragedy nonetheless. Yeah, so it uh, it's sad, but as you just said, Jeff, it really wasn't unexpected. I was sitting on that info, but I did call you and I said, hey, you know, Jody was admitted to hospice. We don't know if he's got uh, twenty four hours or a week, but I was basically told when we had to we had to make the decision. Actually, and I should say we didn't make the decision. Nick Patrick basically told us he said there's no way my dad will be able to to get down there. And then the word was basically that they didn't know if he was ever going to be ever he was ever going to leave the hospital. 
and uh, he was in worse shape, I think, than was originally being led on. Apparently, he had almost died in the hospital or had died, and they had revived him and I guess was getting a little bit better. But we had basically been told there was no way he was going to be able to make it down and, uh, you know, and, and that they were sorry, you know, and there's no reason to apologize for something like that. So we were fortunate in that we were able to secure a legend in Jerry Jarrett to come down and fill that spot. But, you know, nobody can replace Jody Hamilton. Nobody can replace the assassin. And Jeff, as you said, when this question was asked uh, a month or two ago about your favorite fan fest guest, you said Jody Hamilton. and. I, the reason you gave, which I clearly remember, was he was on the first card that you ever went to. And that's a really big thing when you're a longtime wrestling fan, because we all go back to those early memories of what's so important to us. And my favorite memory of Jody Hamilton, and I could, I, you know, we literally could do a six-hour tribute show on just Jody Hamilton stories, but his reaction after the first fan fest was it was really, I'm getting goosebumps as I think about it. It was one of my most proudest moments ever because he wrote this, a post to Facebook, which I saved. And it was this deep post about what an honor it is and what a blessing it is that after a 50 plus year career in this industry to have an event named after you. And we had basically called this, the, the assassin returns to Tampa and the event was built around him. I mean, without him, you know, this wouldn't have been what it was. And he was so grateful and he was so appreciative and yet humble about it. And it, for me, you know, I grew up as a kid at the assassin. There was my God, there were so many memories of seeing the assassin live. And he was just such a great wrestler in the ring. I, I think he's the greatest masked wrestler I ever saw. Uh, but as a booker, he was great. Everything he did in this business was great. And the respect he had. And, you know, we we were talking last week to Jimmy Jett. And I think I don't remember, you know, or two weeks ago, whatever that was. I don't remember if this made it on air or if this was a conversation we had. But Jimmy was talking about uh, the assassin and Jody Hamilton. And he also, you know, Jimmy had uh, looked up to the assassin, had the utmost respect, kind of a mentor. And I had mentioned to him about David Penzer and David Penzer obviously is my partner with CWF legends fan fest though. Jeff, everybody thinks it's you for whatever reason. Uh, well, uh, well, I haven't seen any of that money. That's yeah, all I was going to say. Where's the check, right? Where are the royalties? But you know, and, and Jimmy had this great story about, you know, being with uh, Penzer or having a conversation and Jody ripping Penzer an ass, like just laying into him about something. But when it was all oh, over, to be there, Barry, oh, to be there. there. But when it was all over, you know, Jody, I guess, basically said, you know, he was like a father and, and it was like a father giving tough, tough love. And, you know, he put a hand on Penzer's shoulder and and basically was like, you know, you need to pay more attention, do this right and do it this way. But it was being done with care. And that's apparently the way. And if you listen to anybody that ever worked with Jody in any of these training schools, that's the kind of guy he was. He wasn't shy and he was going to rip you an ass if he felt you deserved it. At the same time, you were his son, you were his family, and he was doing it to make you better. And I have the utmost respect for him. I was devastated when I saw that he had passed because even that caught me by surprise, knowing how dire the situation was. I didn't even expect it that quick. Uh, he, you know, again, we throw around the word legend. My God, I've referred to like 
people as legends that in any context probably shouldn't be. Jody Hamilton, Jeff, true legend in professional wrestling. You know, uh, I was, uh, after we, after we lost Jody, I was, you know, looking up some stuff about him, uh, online, reading some stories about him. And I want to just put something in context for those of you out there. Barry, you remember back when you were 17, 18 years old, what you were like, what you were doing, because Jody Hamilton folks was a headliner in Madison square garden when he was a teenager. You know, we talk about Guys like Terry Gordy and, and the guy that we're going to talk about after this, Bobby Eaton, guys that got their start when they were there in their teen years, okay? And, and there have been others that have started when they were a teen. But this guy was a, a teenager who was a headliner on a main event at Madison Square freaking Garden. Barry, what, when I was 18 or 19 years old, I, I was lucky to be able to drive to the end of the street to get gas in my car. And this guy's you know, working a crowd of, of angry uh, Latinos who were upset that they wanted to, you know, they thought they were going to kill, you know, Argentina Rocca and, and Miguel Perez. And this guy had 22,000 people chasing him down the street probably. And wow, when you say the word legend, you are not just throwing out a, a word that, that, you know, you're right. We use it too often for people that really aren't deserving of that title. And Jody Hamilton, you think about all the, the places that he went and, and the way that he protected his industry with a, a pride and a revelry, you know, that, that simple stuff like, I'm going to give you an example. No, we weren't uh, Bolo 1 and Bolo 2. It was, it was the, the mass Bolo. I, I was Bolo. Uh, I was not Bolo 1. And he would get, like, agitated that someone didn't get that little particular point right. Because he was so, you know, protective of the business, of his legacy. And yes, you know, uh, probably the 10th time, this was a guy that was there at the Savannah Civic Center with his partner, Tom Ernesto Sr. When I saw him face Bobby Shane and Doug Gilbert, and that was the first card that my grandmother ever took me to when I was like 10 years old. And, you know, geez, 50 years later almost, Barry, I... That's what stuck its hook in me and, and reeled me in for, oh, good Lord, my entire life was a guy like Bobby Shane and a guy like Jody Hamilton. Because when he would do those interviews, it'll never be over. And, you know, the, the stuff he did with, with uh, Bob Armstrong as the flame, I was watching those videos. And, oh, man, this is a guy that didn't do flippy shit. And yeah, I know this was a, a long time ago when the business evolves and the business changes. Jody Hamilton made you fucking believe that what you were seeing was real, that he was trying to friggin' wipe out Bobby Shane and Doug Gilbert, that he was trying, when he, when he was El Santo in Florida, by God, he wanted to fucking kill Dusty Rhodes. And you believed because the way that he got across as a heel Behind the mask, he made you believe, Barry. And and so that right there, I believe, was the key to a lot of his success. And so, like, I turned on SmackDown this past Friday night, and there was good and bad. As with anything, there's good and bad to it. But as I watch it, I don't believe anybody. I understand that everything I'm seeing is, is a, a very slick produced television show. When Jody Hamilton, who almost never raised his voice 
but he would talk with this sinister, almost Hannibal Lecter type of tone. When he told you he was going to do something, it sent shivers up and down your spine because you believed this man was pure evil. You believed the marks, even if you were smart to the business, you believed. And I saw a match, Jeff, maybe one of the greats I ever saw, and it was a babyface King Curtis, in which that right there is enough to blow your mind, a babyface King Curtis wrestling the assassin, and I believe it was a Texas death match at the High Life Fronton in Miami, 1976, and it was a bloodbath. The, the mask was ripped open and there was blood coming out. Uh, I don't think there was a clear-cut ending to this match, but you know, if, if you would have asked me then, I would have told you, this is real. There was nothing about this that wasn't real. And if you ask me now, I will tell you the same, Jeff. It was real because I believe then and I believe now. And only a guy like Jody Hamilton could make you believe. Jody Hamilton as the mask assassin was not a guy, no matter how much beer courage you got up, that you were jumping in the aisle to confront. Because you knew that if you did, <laughs> you know, you, you were done. Because he was going to fucking take care of you because, you know, Barry, part of what I said was I was reading up uh, the other day after Jody's death. He did not have an easy upbringing. You know, he, he was a guy that left home because of, of violence that was happening uh, in the home that he grew up in. And he went to live with his brother, uh, who was his, actually his, I believe his half-brother or was it right. his stepbrother? Which one was it, Barry? His I think half- it was his half-brother. Okay, his half-brother, and, who was the Missouri Mauler. and you know, here that like, I think it's like within a year, he's in Madison Square freaking garden, you know? And that is just, he was a badass when the business was still full of badasses, you know? And uh, he was a guy that was just not to be trifled with, a guy that that definitely, I think, had the respect uh, of everyone, whether you like Jody or not. You, you respected him, you know, and that's respect in the wrestling business is not something that's given lightly. It's something that is by God earned and Jody Hamilton, all his years in the wrestling business, by God earned the respect of everybody that knew him and, and appreciated his, his talents uh, in and out of the ring. So Barry, as we are wont to do here on Breaking Cafe with Bowdrin and Barry, yes, sir. we proudly raise an adult beverage to the memory of the great Jody Hamilton the mask assassin. See you on the other side, my friend. And now Barry, that takes us to, Oh, another kick right in the proverbial crotch. I woke up the other day, picked up my phone to see what was happening. Newsworthy. And I saw the report from, from Dave Meltzer that we had lost Bobby Eaton. And, you know, uh, subsequent uh, after that, I, I found out that, you know, that Bobby had a lot of health related issues. Certainly, you know, uh, my heart grieves for the fact that, you know, Bobby lost his wife uh, within the last, God, like three months. And, you know, when you're with somebody that long and you lose them, it really is hard to carry on, you know. And uh, it, I think Bobby was on a downward spiral physically, perhaps even emotionally. Uh, you know, uh, I, I want to encourage Uh, Those of you, if you haven't done so yet, uh, and I know, Barry, you're one of the people that hasn't had a chance to yet, really listen to Jim Cornette's uh, Memories of Bobby Eaton. 
on uh, on the network. Uh, the first five minutes, I will tell you, are extremely difficult to listen to because Jimmy breaks down and cries as he remembers his friend Bobby. Uh, and then he and Brian last start telling stories about Bobby. Uh, a lot of them are very funny. Uh, you know, Bobby was uh, Bobby was basically a guy that apparently could puke on cue, Barry. <laughs> like oh, all wow. you had, all you could basically do was. Uh, and Jimmy tells a story about how Stan Lane they stop at a KFC and they get like some of the gravy for the mashed potatoes, and Stan Lane makes a comment, "Yeah, Bobby, you know that that gravy kind of looks a little bit like baby puke," uh, and and like <laughs> Bobby just right there, bleh, you know, anything that would make his stomach the slightest bit queasy was going to you know result in a in a major uh, barfification because uh, he was going to lose it right there uh so there are very funny stories very poignant stories and then at the end uh somebody apparently had done a song I, I told Barry about this uh to the uh to the sounds of, of the old Don McLean song Vincent uh and they wrote in some lyrics that were specific to Bobby his life and his career and then at the end uh, a very tearful Jimmy says you know Bobby Lee, I, I will always love you. And, and, you know, it's it's very sad and very poignant, but it's something that needs to be listened to. And, you know, Barry and I were talking about before uh, we started recording that, you know, we, we could sit there and talk about Bobby Eaton and we could tell stories about him and how great he was. But, you know, it, it's Jimmy's memories in this case that really matter. Jimmy knew him probably better, you know, than just about anybody, maybe better than, you know, uh, other than his wife who was passed, maybe Jimmy knew him better than anybody. And you really get the feeling that although Jimmy uh, as the manager was very fond of Stan Lane, he was very fond of Dennis Condry, that Bobby, you know, I I'm sure for Jimmy, this is, this is the brother that he never had. Uh, and this is, this is very much like Jimmy losing a, a family member, a, a brother. And it's been very tough on, on Jimmy. I know bear. Yeah, and we did, you and I did talk about this too. And, uh, you know, Bob Eaton was such a guy that made such an impact on our generation of wrestling fans. And we weren't kids when we were watching Bob Eaton. We were already adults, but that was a glory period. And the Midnight Express, you know, above everything else, they were internet darlings long before there was an internet that we were aware of. So technically, I guess they were newsletter darlings. And, you know, you can look at whoever the most popular wrestler with the internet is now. And I don't know who that, maybe it is Jim Cornette because, you know, 30, 40 years later, everybody on the internet loves him. Uh, I should say most people love him, but uh, Bobby Eaton in the Midnight Express, you know, and Jim Cornette back in the newsletter days, they were it, Jeff. They were, they were our Holy grail on just about every level, Ric Flair, the NWA. So, uh, you know, I, I'm assuming we saw hundreds of Bobby Eaton matches throughout the years. We've certainly reviewed a few on our show. Uh, it's a huge loss. And he was 62 years old. He was a young guy. It sucks. He was scheduled to be in Charlotte uh, a couple of weeks back for the gathering that I attended. And he pulled out because of health issues. But I, I guess in my head, I never once thought that, you know, those health issues would lead to a fatality. So rest in peace, Bobby Eaton. We thank you, and I speak for Jeff, Sweet Lou, and uh, really I'll speak for all of our listeners, Jeff. We thank Bobby Eaton for the memories that he gave us and putting his ass on the line every single match. And, you know, uh, I, I saw something the other day. I, I think uh, someone had posted that Steve Kern uh, was at a, uh, a gathering where there was a group of wrestlers, and he said, you know, I, I think Bobby Eaton is – 
probably the what was it? he said he was the greatest tag team wrestler of all time. I think he said, did he say tag team or just greatest wrestler? One of those two. And the yeah. first person that stood up and applauded those comments was Ric Flair. And when Ric Flair was the booker, the only two guys that he wanted to work with were Brian Pillman and Bobby Eaton. And he wanted to put Bobby over. And, you know, Jimmy, Jimmy on his show told a great story about how when it came time for Goldberg's streak to end, the guy that Goldberg suggested that he that should end the streak was Bobby Eaton. Because that's the kind of respect that Bobby Eaton had in the dressing room. The the guy, you know, if, if a guy in the business came up and said something negative about Bobby or talked shit about Bobby Eaton, I think that kind of told you everything you needed to know about that person in particular. Because yep. a, a, anybody in the business, I mean, you know, there are there is a wide variety of people in this business, wide variety of personalities, you know, uh, of, of nationalities. And the one thing I think that pretty much everyone in the business agreed upon was that Bobby Eaton was a good guy. And that is how he should be remembered best. More so even that he may have been the, you know, the greatest wrestler of all time or the greatest tag team wrestler of all time was that Bobby Eaton was a good guy. He was a good man. And Bobby, we raise an adult beverage to your memory, my man. You will be missed, our brother. And we'll see you on the other side. Uh, Barry, let me just mention that our Patreon episode three uh, at the time of our recording has just come out within the last week. We would encourage you, if you have not yet done so, to uh, give us a shot. Uh, five bucks, you know, uh, become a Patreon subscriber. But then again, Barry, I wonder, should we really be telling people what they should do, how they should spend their money? Should we really be doing Because I've, I've heard we shouldn't do that, Barry. Yeah, that's apparently there was a... Uh... I, I was uh, trading messages with somebody who felt that we were a little heavy-handed. Well, don't get in a huff. That's all I'm going to say. All right. All right. That's fair enough. But at, at the end of the day, look, your support is uh, is invaluable to us because, uh, first off, I do have a full-time job, and I have to squeeze in these recordings. I have a kid in college that I pay for. There are no loans being taken out, which I'm proud to say that I'm able to do that for my son. Uh, and then next year, I'll have two kids in college, which will probably cause now, me to now have Now, will you have two, two scholarship students, or are you going to be taking out a student loan for Zoe? <laughs> I, 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 my goal and my, my soon to be ex-wife, uh, we did have a goal that if we could pay for college for both of our children, that would be the most important thing for us. And I, I, I'm right there with that. So in a perfect world, neither kid will ever have to pay for their education, but it, you know, this little bit, it's only $5 a month from your side. I'm speaking to the listener. It's only five bucks a month. And it's $60 a year. You don't have to put forth. But what it does, it, it pretty much ensures that this podcast will continue. As everybody knows, this is no secret, there were a couple of shows on the Arcadian Vanguard Network which are no longer there. Uh-huh. Yes. We have no plans on going anywhere. Jeff and I, we're in this. This is four years, 201 episodes. We we want to be the guys who are 80 years old still doing this fucking podcast, right, Jeff? And we'll be going, ah, remember, the, remember the young bucks? Yes. Oh, they were. And now these new guys, oh, they suck. They're not as good as the <laughs> Kenny Omega was great. 
Yeah, but now these new guys, exactly. But it, look, all joking aside. When he, is MJF going to retire? The fuck is <laughs> like 45 yeah. years old. How the fuck is Ric Flair still in the ring? Yeah, go figure. But look. Ric Flair the, doing cameos now. Ric Flair he's, doing he's cameos. He's 92, but he's doing cameos. He's doing it. He said he's going to make a comeback. But look, we uh, we appreciate it. My guess is if you're listening to us right now, uh, then you at least like some of the content, if not all that we provide you. We encourage you. The Patreon is a, a great way to say thank you uh, for four years of content, but it also helps ensure that this fine podcast, this Peabody and Sherman award-winning, as Jeff likes to say, yes, will continue. And hopefully we'll continue with Sweet Lou on our side as well. Yes, and you know, the, uh, if you do the Patreon for, again, the mere amount of $5 a month. You, know, you, you get to ask questions of, of certain legends that we have uh, maybe lined up uh, for a Patreon episode four, not going to mention any names, contracts still being typed up, signatures need to be signed, but then we can reveal who we have as a guest for Patreon number four. And of course, as a Patreon subscriber, you will get the opportunity to discuss and ask questions of this wrestling, uh, nah, I'm not going to, should I say le- legend, uh, a tag team uh, legend, I would say, uh, and a guy whose family has quite a legacy in the business. That's all I'm going to say. That's all I'm going to say. But uh, you will have the chance as a Patreon subscriber. We will say, hey, what, what you got? What kind of questions you got? You people that don't feel willing to uh, offer up your $5, those people that would rather post six, seven times a day about people's shitting uh, situations or or foods that'll make you crap. Those guys who I'm not going to mention because not a Patreon subscriber, but you will get your name mentioned and you will be able to ask uh, this legend and perhaps legends in the future. Pertinent questions, questions that you want answered can be answered for you. And if you don't want to part with your $5, if because by God, that $5 means you're not going to be able to get a fucking Slurpee or a triple mocha cappuccino at Starbucks, eh, let's just say that you won't get a chance to ask those questions of uh, of the uh, wrestling legend or Barry and myself. So once again, we appreciate uh, your, your patronage. Uh, we appreciate your subscription. We really do appreciate the $5. We're busting balls here, but we really do. You know, that says a lot. For you, that you think enough of Barry and myself and Lou and and the whole Arcadian network, that you're willing to give five bucks just a, a you know, let us do this goofiest fucking shit show and act like a couple of thirteen year olds, you know. But uh, we do appreciate it. So on behalf of the sweet man out by the bay, Lou Kippelman, uh, and my co-host Barry Rose, I am Jeff Bowden. Sometimes they call me the Booker. Sometimes they call me that guy that was in the row that was making lewd gestures. But I'm telling you, I was sitting next to Oban, and I can swear that it was Oban that did that. That's all I'm going to say. Lou, we're a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. Take us home, man.